Welcome to Books in the Wild. I'm Carrie Schroeder. If this is your first time listening, Books in the Wild is a podcast that focuses on book arts. We explore the book as a book, as an artifact of human history. Topics include techniques and practices like book binding or letterpress printing. We also cover odd little tales from book history. My goal is to have a podcast for book artists by book artists that can be enjoyed by a broader audience to hopefully garner more interest in the book world. That being said, today's episode isn't directly about books, but rather about the creative process itself, or in this case, the lack thereof. Today I'm talking about creative block. What is it? How can you overcome it? Is it contagious? This episode covers topics that can be applied to all creative work, not just book artists. So this would probably be a great starting point for you to share this podcast with your friends. Hint, hint. Well, we have made it to our fourth episode, and I regret to inform you that Books in the Wild is definitely going to be a monthly podcast instead of the promised twice-monthly release. It turns out that researching, writing, recording, editing, and promoting a podcast by myself while also holding down a job and trying to work on my own artwork and also attempting to eat and shower every once in a while has proven to be a little more difficult than I originally thought. The good news is that, since most of the episodes were so irregularly released anyway, really the only thing that's happening is that I'm going to stop lying to you about when the next episode is coming out. I think the 15th of every month sounds like a good release date, so let's plan on that. The next episode will be released May 15th and every 15th monthly henceforth. I am also currently working on interviewing book workers for a future episode, so if you happen to be a book artist, printer, bookbinder, librarian, conservator, bookseller, or a literal bookworm, and you would like to participate in a brief interview to be played on a future episode, please email me at booksinthewildpodcast at gmail.com for more information. And now let's talk about creativity. Hello everyone, my name is Carrie. I have been suffering from a creative block for going on two months now. I've tried long walks, wine, going to art exhibitions, wine, movies with subtitles, and wine, but nothing wants to budge. If you, like most of us, are a living, breathing human being, then you've probably experienced creative block at some point in your life. And if you rely on creativity in your professional life and or rely on a creative hobby to keep you relatively sane from your day job, then you know how damaging and disheartening a creative block feels and how difficult it can be to pull yourself out of such an inspirational vortex. For this episode, I wanted to create a commonplace audiobook. A commonplace book is a compilation of information or inspiration, anything that one would like to remember or save to reference later. They differ from diaries or journals in that it's usually organized by topic instead of date, and culls information from many sources instead of being autobiographical. You can call it a sort of inspiration book. So for this commonplace audiobook, I've compiled some information about the creative process in general, some famous examples of creative blocks, not in a, see, you don't have it so bad kind of way, but more of a, see, you're not alone kind of way. I've also called some advice on rekindling inspiration and included some music and audio clips that I've been enjoying lately and that I hope you enjoy too. It's sort of a mishmash mixtape of inspiration and I hope it doesn't come across as too chaotic. 
And if you've never suffered from creative block and you have no idea what I'm talking about, well then good for you. Personally, I've been suffering from a general creative meh feeling. My project ideas are sort of there, but they're hazy and difficult to focus, and I'm far too easily distracted. It feels like I'm trying to build a sandcastle when the sand is too wet and you're trying to shape it and pull it all together, but it just keeps slipping away. And you try and you try, but nothing is solidifying and everything feels so ephemeral and formless until you're just yelling, what am I doing? No one even likes sandcastles. I hate sand and I hate the beach and now I'm sunburned and what is the point? What is the point of anything? Yeah, as you can see, Creative blocks can be a slippery slope into a pretty bad place, especially if your life and work revolves heavily around your creative input. What is unique about artistic or creative professions is that it's so intrinsically tied to you, your entire character and being. By artists, I'm going to go ahead and lump together visual artists, writers, musicians, performing artists, and anyone whose professional direction relies on this self-generating energy. There's an expectation in our society for these professions to be for life. If people with other professions decide that they need a career change, it's usually not viewed as a failure in the same way that artists are viewed. I've never heard about a high school teacher who decides to go into, say, retail merchandising, and then people start saying, oh, so you couldn't make it as a teacher, huh? Yet for some reason, artists are not given this same freedom in their career paths. You never hear about a former musician or former artists. You only hear about failed ones. It's similar to traditional views on relationships, where it doesn't matter how long you've been together or how happy you were. If you decide to split up, even mutually, instead of dying together, perhaps miserably, then that relationship is considered a failure by the majority's standpoint. And so I guess being an artist is kind of like being in a relationship, except with yourself. And also, if you've ever dated an artist, you know that they are the worst. They're moody, introspective, emotional, workaholic perfectionists. So you're basically in your own worst relationship and also your worst critic. Being an artist is also a compulsion, a release. And it can be truly freeing when you're finally able to harness that stuff, that raw, malleable stuff, that little ball of glowing energy, and shape it into something beautiful and new. And so I think it's because art pulls so heavily from that inner substance, whenever we feel stuck and are suddenly unable to access it freely, it tends to affect every aspect of our lives. When I was binge watching Netflix instead of working recently, I started watching a series of fairly formulaic but beautifully executed documentaries called Chef's Table. Anyway, I'm about to give a spoiler on the episode about Chef Grant a Katz. It's not some big murder mystery or anything, but if you're the kind of person that feels cheated with knowing information before you see it for yourself, go ahead and plug your ears for the next 15 seconds or so. So season two, episode one of Chef's Table focused on Chef Grant Akatz from Chicago, who talked about when he was diagnosed with tongue cancer and lost his sense of taste. And he was pretty much like, well, I guess I'm gonna kill myself now. But then everything was fine later and he continues to make beautiful things. But what I found interesting was how serious and devastating losing his sense of taste was for him as a chef. I mean, I'm sure it would be upsetting for me too, but my sense of taste is something that I could probably live without. I actually often think about what body parts I could do without if I had to, which sounds weird now that I'm actually saying it aloud, but it's true. There's definitely a body part hierarchy. For example, my right hand is way more important to me than my left hand. I don't think I could live without my sense of sight, but loss of hearing? 
eh, I could probably deal with it if I had to. To be clear, I don't want to lose any body part, but I just like to be prepared for this imaginary situation where I might have to choose. Like if I ever have to bargain with an ogre who demands, give me your big toe and your family lives, and then I'll be ready to say, will a pinky toe do? See that right there? Slippery slope. Apologies in advance for this wet sandcastle of an episode. Creative block, not unlike depression, actually not unlike depression at all, is this space. It's a space and a void and a process all at the same time. It may take you a while to realize you're even there, but once you're in, it can be hard to find your way out again. You're looking for signs, looking for that light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But at the same time, ideas and thoughts are still sometimes swarming, buzzing all around you, but you just can't grasp them. It's kind of like the upside down in Stranger Things, also a binge-worthy show, by the way. It feels like you and your environment are not occupying the same space. While you're stuck in this void space, you can read or hear all about how to find inspiration, you know, the 10 ways that you can overcome your creative slump, the 47 things that you should be doing right now to change your life. I ate dark chocolate for 19 days straight to cheer myself up, and you won't believe what happens next. None of it actually works to bring you out of a slump, at least not for me anyway, but it does provide some reassurance that I am not alone, and you are not alone. We're all in the sinking ship together, and that is reassuring, I think. And then one morning, for no reason at all, that dreary, soul-sucking ogre just lets you go, and you feel like yourself again, back in your space hopefully with all of your toes intact. I know I'm in a slump when my creative process goes something like this. Okay, let's get started. Once upon a time. Nope. Mm. It was a dark and stormy night. No, no, no. Fifty shades of... Wow, there's a lot of dust in this room. I could dust it, but I think I'll be more productive in another room. <sighs> That's better. Actually, it's a little cold. Maybe I need a blanket. Yep, this is definitely better. I'm feeling ready. Here we go. And go. Ready and go. Ugh. Maybe I'm hungry. A snack would help for sure. I'll just make a quick peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then get straight back to work. Hmm, I wonder where peanut butter comes from. And then, an embarrassingly undisclosed amount of time later, According to the National Peanut Board, it takes about 540 peanuts to make a 12-ounce jar of peanut butter. Peanuts have been a good luck tradition in NASA since the 1960s, and every lunch involves the passing and sharing of peanuts in the control room. Peanut butter may have been originally created by Aztecs as a toothache remedy in the first century CE. It's a slippery slope of peanut butter, guys. You were born, bound in chains in an underground Can't see the sirens, I can only look forward To never ever 
Creativity is defined as the tendency to generate or recognize ideas, alternatives, or possibilities that may be useful in solving problems, communicating with others, and entertaining others and ourselves, says Robert E. Franken in his book, Human Motivation. Then, according to Dr. Mel Rhodes in the article, An Analysis of Creativity, the word creativity is a noun naming the phenomenon in which a person communicates a new concept, which is the product, and mental activity or the mental process is implicit in the definition. One of my favorite quotes regarding creativity is by Isaac Asimov, where he describes the creative person as, a person willing to fly in the face of reason, authority, and common sense must be a person of considerable self-assurance. Since he occurs rarely, he must seem eccentric in at least that respect to the rest of us. 
A person eccentric in one respect is often eccentric in others. Consequently, the person who is most likely to get new ideas is a person of good background in the field of interest and one who is unconventional in his habits. To be a crackpot is not, however, enough in itself. So now we have a vague idea of what creativity is, but where does it come from? Like my aforementioned sandcastles, it feels difficult to grasp. Some people accept the magical or supernatural approach. In ancient Rome and Greece, artists and poets would invoke gods in order to create their work. Even today, the myth of the muse is still very present in our lives. Many artists wholeheartedly believe that the source of their creative work comes from a higher, otherworldly power. Under this belief, creative block is equal to being abandoned by your muse. If you want to take a more Jungian approach, the source of our creativity is closely linked to the collective unconscious, a pool of symbols and primal instincts and archetypes that we as humans all share together. In this model, creativity means being able to dip into this collective unconscious source material. And therefore, creative block would refer to the unsuccessful attempt at tapping into this base source. If we want to strip away all magic from the equation, we can consider creativity as a purely neurological process, which would essentially correlate unconventional thought patterns and the ability to conjure novel ideas with mental illness. This is certainly not a new concept, as history has long established a link between madness and creativity. People love stories about crazy artists even though that I think that this correlation has been greatly exaggerated in order to discourage eccentric behaviors and to impose social control, but then again, that may just be my paranoia talking. Tales of creative block are as common as creative achievements. It seems to just be a part of the creative process itself. If you are a maker, then I'm sure you're familiar with that flow of energy that sometimes just runs through you when creation feels effortless. And I'm sure you're equally familiar when sometimes you just can't, when the muse abandons you, when you can't tap into that collective unconscious, or when maybe you're a little afraid that you're losing your mind, depending on where you believe this creativity originates, of course. I was very depressed one day, very sad. I was starting to feel my aging process. I was looking at my hair turning silver. I just... And then all of a sudden, this song came into my head. I mean, fully formed song. I had an image of Jerry Garcia in The Grateful Dead with all his silver hair smiling at me. I was standing in my living room all by myself, and I saw Jerry smiling at me. I think he had just died. And then this little song, poof, came. And I usually labor over songs, but it was fully formed. I quickly wrote it down. I found the chords on my guitar, and I called it Grateful um, because I felt Jerry had given it to me. Yeah, beautiful. We all have this channeling, this shamanistic ability. Some make more use of it than others. Do you have that experience? I get ideas in fragments, I always say. It's as if in the other room there's a puzzle. All the pieces are together. But in my room, I did, they just flip one piece at a time into me. And a first piece I get, it's just a fragment of the whole puzzle, but I fall in love with this fragment. Yes, yes. And I love this fragment, and it holds a promise for more, and I keep it, I write it down, and then I say that having the fragment 
is more bait on the hook and it pulls in more and the more that come in the more faster the, uh, the rest come in i love that this is this is great i want a copy of what you just said when you were saying that i was thinking of the ear in that bright green grass and blue velvet the image of that ear which is so horrifying to us all the first time we see it did you like have an image like see it like a painting could it be something that simple it like was that, that simple bobby benton's version of blue velvet yes, so horrifying. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um i didn't like i say i didn't like bobby benton's version when it came out but i heard it again some years later and something started coming from this song. She wore blue velvet. Bluer than velvet was the night. And what came from the song at first was red lips at night in a car and green lawns with some dew in night. And then the next thing that came was a severed ear in the grass. That song, when it came out, um, I, 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 it repelled me, yet I was drawn to it. Then in seeing your film, I reaccessed that weird, uncomfortable trepidation I used to hear hearing that song. Uh -huh. It's uh, the illusion of something comforting or normal. And what's more horrifying than normalcy, really? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I'm performing or writing a, a rock and roll song, I always hope it will tap into the public consciousness because we do our work for the people. And um, I have nothing against uh, success. I'm not obscure by uh, design. It's just some of my work uh, communicates with a lot of people and some of it doesn't. Did you have any idea when you were uh, creating Twin Peaks how this would tap into the public consciousness? No idea, but number one thing is to do what you believe in and do it the best you can, and then um, you uh, see how it goes in the world. I watched that. I felt like I was reconnected with, with the world, with art. It was a gift, really, to everyone. Fantastic. So let's say you're stuck. What do you do to get unstuck? The articles I've come across on about how to get your creative juices flowing again sound remarkably similar to advice I've seen about rekindling relationships, going back to that intrinsic tie between art and one's being. Do an activity you love but maybe haven't done in a long time. Go for a hike. Spend some time in nature. Write down a list of goals. Write down a list of things that make you happy. Write down a list of habits that you might need to change. The only real difference between whether or not these tasks pertain to bettering yourself or fixing your relationship is whether or not you want to add another person into the mix. And that's it. 
Van Gogh made over 2,000 paintings and drawings, though he didn't start painting until the last decade of his life. The bulk of his work was created during two separate two-year streaks, the most prolific of which ended with his suicide at the age of 37. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in just three days because he said the entire story came to him in a dream. Abstract expressionist Agnes Martin abandoned her home in New York in 1967, gave away all of her art materials, and moved to New Mexico, where she didn't show another painting until seven years later. Mark Twain wrote the first two-thirds of Huckleberry Finn in 1876 in a frenzy, and then he didn't finish it until seven years later, which may explain some of the purported unevenness by book critics. William Wordsworth was appointed Poet Laureate in 1843 and is the only poet to not produce any work during his seven-year post. Picasso also used to go through manic bouts of painting, followed by stages of artistic dormancy, sometimes lasting months. Some artists are just able to power through their blocks. When asked for advice on how to overcome writer's block, Maya Angelou said, what I try to do is write. I may write for two weeks. The cat sat on the mat. That is that, not a rat. And it might just be the most boring and awful stuff, but I try. When I'm writing, I write. And then it's as if the muse is convinced that I'm serious and says, okay, okay, I'll come. On the other hand, Chuck Close has no time for a creative block at all. In an interview, in response to him working so soon after recovering from his spinal artery collapse in 1988, Close said, Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work.
Several years ago, I was an art history major in college and trying to work on a semester-long project about Mark Rothko, whom I thought I loved very dearly, and yet whose paintings I had only seen in books. I had read so many books about the emotional response viewers had to Rothko's color fields. Two people even told me that when they saw the paintings in person, that they cried. I loved looking at his work in oversized books, the horizontal planes of rich color ever so slightly sensually touching. When the time came that I finally had the opportunity to see a Rothko retrospective exhibition, I was beside myself with anticipation. I went to the museum, my sketchbook in hand, prepared for an epiphany. When I entered the first gallery, I saw the early work of Rothko, still somewhat figurative at this point. I was underwhelmed. In the second gallery, Rothko had begun his color field paintings, though they were still modest in size. I still felt unmoved. I thought I was missing something, but I still couldn't wait to get to the last gallery. Then in the third and final gallery, Rothko's paintings filled the walls. Their colors were expansive, invading the wall space. And I stood there before the nearly floor-to-ceiling spread of rust brown and orange hues, and I felt... nothing. I witnessed other people around me having a moment, experiencing a true emotional response to the painting, and yet I felt nothing. I waited until everyone around me left so I could be left alone with the painting. I stared, I tried to clear my mind, I tried to look into it, past it, and I still just couldn't see it. I wanted so badly to have the experience that others had, and yet I felt nothing. Soon the nothingness was quickly replaced with disappointment in myself. I was filled with shame that I couldn't see what others saw. I was saddened and afraid that I was missing something, like I couldn't be reached. After I had spent so much time researching and writing about Rothko to have his work not speak to me, it made me feel like such a failure. I returned to the museum several times over the next few weeks, trying to force an experience to no avail. After many visitations, I finally gave up. I walked through an adjoining gallery that had been curated with work meant to complement Rothko's momentous exhibition, paintings from other abstract expressionists, as well as older work that may have served as inspiration alongside contemporary descendants in that same vein. I'd seen the work before, as I'd been to the gallery many times over the past few weeks, but suddenly I found myself alone in a room in front of a painting of a low horizon with a tremendous mottled grayish blue sky and dark reflective ocean. On the muted sand stood a solitary figure dressed in robes facing the sea. From the vantage point of the viewer, one inhabited the figure itself looking into the nearly black water as well as a voyeur looking in on this intimate moment while their back was turned to us, unaware of our presence. There was something about the vastness, the expansive space, the abyss that resonated with me. I felt overwhelmed and unprepared, having given up only moments before that I was even capable of such an experience. And I cried. I stood alone in that room, and I cried. The painting, if you're curious, was Monk by the Sea, painted in the early 19th century by Caspar David Friedrich. He was an artist I had only learned about in passing and really never gave a second thought to, and yet here I was. It happened suddenly, when I wasn't expecting to be moved. Once upon a time, there was a crooked tree and a straight tree, and they grew next to each other. And every day, the 
straight tree would look at the crooked tree and he would say, you're crooked. You've always been crooked and you'll continue to be crooked. But look at me, look at me, said the straight tree. He said, I'm tall and I'm straight. And then one day the lumberjacks came into the forest and looked around. And the manager in charge said, cut all the straight trees. And that crooked tree is still there to this day, growing strong, growing strange. Just forget about the miracles, see? They don't mean a thing. Everybody in camp can do that but me. Hey, give yourself a break, man. Dying to do one. Just a small one, even if it's stupid. Here's the deal. As long as you want it so bad, it's not gonna happen. The only way it's gonna work is if it doesn't matter. Here you go, Bill. Drink up, my man. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I guess. I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It will. It will. So what do we do with this information? How do you seek out inspiration when it tends to be so elusive and unpredictable? I don't have answers. But I can tell you what I've been doing and what sometimes helps me. These are five tips I've compiled from various online sources and from speaking to other artists that might help to get you unstuck and might help to get me unstuck. One, make something every day, even if you don't feel like it and even if you know it's not going to be good. Even just writing a few lines or making a rough sketch can help you maintain a habit of productivity. You may decide later that you don't want to use it for anything or you might really be drawn to something. It's just about casting that line out and waiting for something to catch. And hey, anything is better than nothing, right? Two, listen to music. Listen to your favorite music, discover new music, listen loud, by yourself, sing, dance. Three, surround yourself with positive, creative people. You know the ones. The people that energize rather than drain you. Keep those ones around. And also, try to make sure that you're not turning into an energy drainer yourself. Four, read. Start reading that book on your shelf you've been meaning to get to someday. Or go to your local bookseller in a real-life bookstore. I know the temptation is strong to use a simple search bar, but the experience of browsing an actual bookshelf and even talking to a real-life person about book recommendations is an intimate, personal experience that we all need sometimes. 5. Clean your workspace. Declutter your desk, organize all those scraps of paper, consolidate files on your computer. If you're really, really stuck, then this is a great time to get all those one day I should really do that tasks. At the very least, your workstation will be organized and ready to start on a project right away when the inspiration strikes. But hey, I know it's hard. Creative projects tend to come last when on days you feel like you're just trying to keep your head above water. If you don't feel safe in your environment or supported, it's hard to focus on things as seemingly frivolous as art. And yet, without art, you're just going through the motions. 
So I guess it's just a matter of reestablishing your purpose. And you need to remember that you and your voice are valuable. Well, that concludes episode four of Books in the Wild. I hope the next time we talk that we'll both be well on our way past our creative block and we'll have a whole new episode actually talking about books. I hope that there was something of interest in this weird little commonplace audiobook for you. The conversation between Patti Smith and David Lynch was sampled from openculture.com and the second audio clip was gently borrowed from the film Risk Cutters, A Love Story. For the music used in this episode, the first two songs were The Cave by Black Camaro and Maligned by The Residuals. Thanks guys for letting me include your awesome music in this episode. As always, additional links and notes can be found on our website at booksinthewild.com. And lastly, for a nice rounded finish to this episode, here's the song Wildfire by Hand Grenade Job, a duo consisting of an amazing fellow book artist, activist, and printer. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in one month with a new episode. Thank you.